Hey friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Today we're going to have Valerie Ellis on the podcast. We're going to be talking to Valerie about Christian psychology. Is, is there anything Christian about psychology? Now, this is kind of a touchy subject. Uh, I know a lot of people out there have some strong opinions on this. Uh, Valerie is going to put that to rest. Uh, the, the foundation of what we see as psychology today is based off of uh, men's opinions. And as you will see, these men were more than just fallible. They had some pretty big problems. And their opinions, their philosophies, their worldviews were very skewed. Valerie Ellis, she's got a Bachelor of Arts in Religious Studies and a master's in arts and biblical counseling. Uh, she's also the owner of Colorado Biblical Counseling Center. If you're in this area, uh, you really should check her out. I've referred several people to her already. Just an amazing woman. She really knows her stuff. She's also certified with the International Association of Biblical Counselors. Uh, she's been counseling for over 15 years. And so with that, it is my honor to welcome Valerie Ellis. Hey, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Thank you. So uh, friends, like I mentioned in the introduction, uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, Christian psychology. Just how Christian is it? Uh, what is psychology and, and, well, what it's not when you're, when you're talking about Christian psychology? So first of all, Valerie, what is psychology? Uh, how they define psychology, the word psychology actually means the study <laughs> of the soul. And that's where the, that's the psyche is the soul and ology is, you know, study of. And um, it hasn't, it is not that at this time, but that's the origin of the word. Okay. And, and so as far as uh, secular psychology goes, what types of questions are they trying to answer? And what are they trying to achieve? Well, there's several, actually many different aspects to psychology, the one that I'm particularly interested in is dealing with personal problems that people have, and so it would be the questions that any counselor who's trying to help a person with personal, familial, relationship problems, um, just problems of the situations in their lives is, what is wrong and how can I fix it? How can I help this person? How can, how can I um, lead them to a better place in their life? All, all counselors are, that. hopefully, that would be their goal. And so, you know, so many people that are listening, they've, you know, so many of them have either been to psychologists, uh, some of them uh, send their children to psychologists. Um, what types of things can you expect from psychology right now? Wow, that is a, that is a very broad question. Of course, <laughs> it depends. It depends on the the specific practitioner that you're going to and what um, type of psychology he's practicing. Most of them do not practice one type of psychology they or, or one strain of psychology. They will um, mix and match the, the different theories and put them all together and what they like. So they're basically practicing their own um, form of psychology. You can, you can expect a licensed psychologist to practice according to the dictates of the state. Okay, then now that's interesting. So in, in light of Christian psychology, um, how Christian can Christian psychology be if you must be licensed by the state? 
Christian psychology is a misnomer, in my opinion. It, what it means to me is we have a person who is claiming to be a Christian, who may truly be a Christian, and he's practicing psychology, which is a secular field. So there, there's no identifiable body of knowledge that is, that, is, that is Christian psychology. We have biblical principles, and then we have the theories of man from the science of psychology. And I have science in quotes. It's not really a science. But the science of psychology, um, and then a Christian will study those theories from secular man and practice them under state licensure. Wow. Okay, so in other words, yeah, it, a, a Christian is going to be hamstrung. They're not going to be able to really share their Christian faith. It's going to be more like man's ideas with a Christian label on it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The only time that a Christian could could use his faith to help a person would be if a Christian came in for counseling, and he may, be, he may know a Bible verse or he may be able to um, pray with him if the person wanted him to. But if an atheist comes in, a Buddhist and a Muslim, anybody else is not, he, he is not allowed by the state to share the gospel with him, give him hope in Jesus Christ, hand out the, um, you know, tell him the gospel, anything like that. You cannot do that under state licensure. In fact, and this is kind of a little side road, but uh, recently I heard too that, that um, at least in California, and it's probably in other states as well, uh, Christian psychologists cannot give any type of counts, counseling that would uh, help coach a homosexual who wants to get treatment to, to straighten out. Uh, they're, they're not allowed to give that help, are they? I'm not you know, up on the specifics of California law, but that doesn't surprise me because the state can't take a a stand on moral issues like that. It's my understanding in most states, you cannot tell someone you are, this is sin, this is wrong what you're doing, and you need to repent and have God deliver you. Same thing for, you know, a serial adulterer or anything like that. You you have to just um, view it as completely amoral. If the person mm. doesn't like it and wants to get out of something, you can help them if it's if it's their, if that's what their goal is, but you as a state licensed counselor cannot have that goal for them. Hmm. Hmm. So when I heard you speak at Calvary Chapel, you went uh, all the way back to the ancient philosophers and you started tying together different elements from different philosophers and then moving forward in time and talking about different um, uh, thinkers throughout the ages and how their different ideas have stacked together to build what we now see as modern psychology. Uh, that spoke volumes. That was so interesting because there were so many things that uh, even I had viewed as, well, that's okay. That's just a fact. That's, I mean, we all know that to be a fact. And mm -hmm. suddenly I realized, wait a minute, this is a house of cards. This is built on the wisdom of man, and it has nothing to do with the scriptures at all. And um, it, it, would you have some time to go through some of this and, and talk about some of these ancient philosophers and other uh, philosophers throughout the ages who have come up with these ideas and how they fit into our idea of, of modern psychology. Yeah, and the, the bottom line for 
um, the theory of all that is you have to answer the question, where does truth come from, metaphysical truth? Where do, where do we um, understand that true truth, as Francis Schaeffer says, comes from? Do we, can, which the soul of man is a metaphysical entity. We can't study the soul of man with scientific experimentation. So um, you can't get it. We believe as Christians that truth about um, metaphysical and spiritual and soul ideas has to has come to us from God, and He has told us what's true about man and what's true about um, eternity and what's true about our soul and sin and things like that. Well, all the the ancient philosophers that I go through in my seminar, I explain they are atheist men who have come up with theories. Um, some of them, most of them not science, through scientific experimentation, but just through their own thinking and considering things and life experience or whatever, and they come up with these theories, and it changes each person. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle did not all believe the same thing even, but they're not looking for true truth. They're just putting ideas forth and and um, and making guesses, and that's when why when Jesus came and he said, he spoke as one who had authority because he was not just a philosopher giving another theory. He said, this is what it is, and here's true truth that you can um, place you know, your life in, into this. And so um, do you have a particular philosopher that you, that, or something that I said in the, that you w- were wondering about that you want well, me to there talk was, about? Well, there was so many of them. Uh, and, and friends, when you're listening to this, it's kind of hard to visualize this. Uh, uh, Valerie actually had some slides that she was showing, and she was showing this progression down through the ages, uh, you know, <clears throat> starting all the way back in, in uh, oh gosh, it was um, in ancient Egypt is where you started, mm-hmm. and all the way up to modern times. Um, and, and, and you even talked about how these lines, like there was one line of thought and then it split into two and I'm trying, I'm, you can hear me rustling around here looking for the, yeah, it splits and in the Middle Ages it splits with the Renaissance and the Reformation and you have two different lines, one leading to a form of biblical counseling and no, no, biblical counseling. I'm sorry, straight up biblical counseling. And the other, Christian and secular psychology. Um, I guess, yeah, I, I'd like to see, you know, starting with perhaps early Christianity and then that line where it makes it to Christian and secular psychology and how that influences, uh, you know, what, what you're going to get when you go to a, even a Christian psychologist, psychologist, this is what you're going to end up getting. Yeah, so the Middle Ages was about a thousand-year period where um, a lot of learning was lost and people did not have, most um, people did not have a copy of the Word of God in their, um, for themselves. There was, the Roman Catholic Church uh, really became powerful during that time, and there was a lot of um, superstition and a lot of guesses about, you know, what's wrong with people and why can't we all get along and, you know, depression and anxiety and all those, you know, common illness that we have even today. Well, at the, because of um, some very extreme views 
in the Middle Ages, you know, it's all due to demon possession, and they would burn people at the stake and things like that. When the, when the Lord brought the world out of those dark ages, thinking went in, this is very general, but two, two particular paths. One of them was the Renaissance, which is man's, um, man decided, we're going to figure this out on ourselves, and they went back to the ancient philosophers and man's reason man's reasoning to get their truth. The other fork was to go back to the Bible, back to what Jesus taught, back to the uh, what the apostles said, um, and that was to go back to revelation. What has God revealed to us to be the truth about ourselves? So those were the, they were diametrically opposed lines, maybe not in every area, but in this particular area of soul care and soul problems, there were two theories, man's reasoning back to the ancient philosophers, or are we going to take our truth from God's revelation? And so the Renaissance um, had, had particular philosophers um, like Descartes, who said he was just going to, he, he knew in the past, you know, good philosophers and people that were highly revered disagreed with one another, so he's the one that said, I think, therefore I am, and I'm just going to trust in myself. And he... Um, laid the philosophical groundwork for finding the truth within, which we see today. So that's a that's one strain. And John Locke, he determined not to accept anything as truth unless it could be verified by scientific investigation. And he said he came up with this tabula rasa. There's um, every person is born with a blank slate, and our families and our environment and our experience are written on that tablet, and that's what corrupts us, which we know as believers that's not true. We're inherently, you know, Revelation has told us we're all born with a sin nature, and that's what what our problem is. So all these philosophers of the Renaissance, Renaissance, they went back to some ancient philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and all, um, and Hippocrates, and these other men, and then they came up with their own theories and put those forth. That led to um, the period called the Enlightenment, which just went further into looking into within man and looking at our own science and our own reasoning to determine the truth. So Immanuel Kant, um, he he said, all religious ideas must be dismissed. We have to be completely free of any divine cause or influence, and we'll at that point we'll be enlightened. And we can't know anything about metaphysical realities because we can't experience them, so we're not going to be able to um, know anything about them. And at, at least, at least Immanuel Kant. Sorry about that. <laughs> at least what? Bad joke. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I did. Okay. Yeah, and so wah, wah, wah. He, <laughs> he, his his philosophy laid the groundwork for this medical model of soul problems today that everything that is wrong with us with problems of living is a physical problem and so we have a lot of medicines that are um, people are taking now to try to help them with their um, soul problems when you know medicine works on our body it doesn't it doesn't work on our soul. So, you know, you just follow these people through and you can see how their philosophy gained some ground and then it, it spiraled into something where we are today. Um, following the Enlightenment then was, you know, John, um, excuse me, um, Sigmund Freud 
and the whole the whole barrage of all the um, psychologists from the um, 1800s on who put forth their theories of what's wrong, and they're all different, and they're all some of them um, are occultic, and some of them are you know just their best guess on on what's wrong and how to help us. Now, what what types of things did Sigmund Freud teach? Sigmund Freud was he's called the father of psychotherapy, but he taught that all of our problems are caused by sexual drives that begin in infancy that we that were stifled and so they're repressed somehow and the the way to become a um, fully functioning and well balanced adult is to go back to those through psychotherapy dream interpretation and um, word association different techniques that he had to to bring those up and um, sometimes even put um, his patients into an altered state of consciousness bring them up and bring them to the conscious mind and then you can be cured of whatever neuroses you have so the bottom line of his is of sexual promiscuity is actually you, you are you should act out your sexual drives because if you don't, they'll be repressed and they'll come out as neuroses as an adult. Did, did, did uh, and I'm not even sure if you're familiar with this guy, but did Alfred uh, Kinsey uh, uh, subscribe to a lot of what Sigmund Freud taught? Yes. Do you know? Yes, I know. He was, you know, he's a big sexual revolution guy. Yeah, he followed in and, and added his own, um, added his own theories as well. And I, I'm not familiar with all his what everything that he taught, but I know that yeah, he was he was along those same lines. And and Sigmund Freud, he would also give people uh, drugs to get him in these altered state of minds at times, right? Yes. And, and I mean heavy drugs. Heavy drugs, cocaine, which Freud happened to be addicted to also. Ah. Uh. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me this then: how many of these uh, psychologists base? their their uh, foundation on Darwin and his theory? Well, in in my view, um, and the ones that almost, almost all psycholog- psychological theory is based on the theory of evolution, that we, there, we don't have a... The science of psychology does not um, take into account man's spiritual side. So they... Almost all of them, even Christian psychi- psychologists have a uh, maybe a theistic evolution uh, worldview, so they still believe you know evolution happened, and um, they don't take into account the soul of man. A Christian would himself, but I'm talking in his practice. Mm. So yeah, okay. that's what psychology. That's a foundational um, view in the whole hierarchy of or edifice of psychology. The foundation is. <laughs> Um, evolution. There is no God that we answer to, and man is the highest creature, and we, you know, we can figure ourselves out, and we can find the answers within ourselves. We don't need some some revelation from the outside to come and tell us um, who we are and what is wrong with us. Mm. Yeah, secular humanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So what about uh, Carl Gustav Jung? That guy was interesting to hear about. <laughs> yeah, he was a protege of Freud, but like so many others, they disagreed, even though they learned some things from each other. He um, was the one who taught we all have a, inherited a collective subconscious 
not not just from our parents, but it's been passed down through the generations that all those memories are repressed and they have to come to the surface also because they are those memories that we don't know are affecting our behavior. And Jung was very definitely an occultist. He promoted astrology, alchemy, the I Ching, mysticism, um, necromancy, visualization, all of that Jung was into. Okay, really quick side note, mm-hmm. and, and I have no idea, but do you, have any, do you know if L. Ron Hubbard read anything from Carl Jung? Because talking about a collective subconsciousness, uh, there's memories that are passed down through the generations that's very similar to Scientology, this idea that um, <laughs> have you ever studied psychology, or I mean Scientology? Scientology, no, I know, I know in general what it is. But yeah, if he's using the term collective subconscious, then he may have read Jung. I mean, I'm, I personally don't know that. But the, that theory originated with Carl Jung. Okay, yeah, and, and L. Ron Hubbard taught basically that, uh, I think it's billions of years ago, the, the the cosmos was overpopulated with humans and and other beings and so this this uh, uh, being named Xenos stacked all of humanity around volcanoes uh, and then <laughs> dropped atom bombs into the volcanoes killing off humanity and some of the humans survived and these uh, disembodied humans uh, they call them thetans were floating around and they attached to humans and so we all have all these Satans that are attached to us like barnacles and we have to go to Scientology to go through a process of getting cleared wow. of these these little barnacles mm-hmm. it, it is nutty yeah um, and where of, of all he, the cults out there where did he get his truth uh, you know, a wild imagination question. yeah how did he <laughs> exactly where did that come from everybody you know thinks certain things but where do you get your truth we believe that the Bible you know, God, God um, spoke through men and they, to men, and they wrote it down, and they have given us inerrant, infallible truth. These other people, those are, that's a wild story, and that's just a guess. How does he know that? The bottom line is, where right. do we get our truth from? Right. So this Jung, right. he influenced, you know, now we have the, um, really big in the Church, especially the last 10 years, is the um, Wild at Heart book that talks about we all we have to go back to our wild self and you know experience the especially you know the book was written to men um to find our primitive roots and get back to you know who we were back then so that we can we'll feel we'll feel better we you know and we'll connect more whatever whatever his whole theory is and people christians are taking that as if it's truth just because john eldridge uh claims to be a christian when he got that theory from Jung, who was an occultist, and he actually um, would um, channel spirits and things. So it's it's doctrines of devils. It's not from God's word. Interesting. And and I guess uh, Jung also influenced Bill Wilson of Alcoholic uh, Anonymous. Apparently, he mentored Jung, mentored Bill Wilson. And Bill Wilson received the 12 steps during a time when he was in contact with spirit entities. And now those 12 steps, okay, the secular world has those in Alcoholics Anonymous, but the 12 steps then became the model for our 12-step recovery programs 
um, in the churches nationwide and possibly worldwide in the Celebrate Recovery um, groups across America. Wow. Wow. Okay. And then something else that blew my socks off that you mentioned during your your, uh, presentation Mm -hmm. is that Jung also influenced, uh, well, okay, his visual visual is, I can't even say it, easy for me to say, (laughs) visualization uh, techniques, uh, guided imagery and meditation actually formed a foundation for the emergent church, or at least some who were part of the emergent church. Yeah, these these um, mystical practices. Okay, they Jung's theories of how to get in contact with deities who will help us, and the visualization and the guided imagery, all that mystical spiritual things are what is part of, and maybe under different names, they call them contemplative prayer, and those types of you know um, centering and closing your eyes and, you know, guided imagery or whatever in prayer for the emergent church who wants to take us back to ancient practices, mystical Catholic practices in the church. Yep. Well, you're, you're preaching my sermon right there. (laughs) Same thing with Sarah Young and her book, Jesus Calling. I mean, she claims that she goes into an altered state and a, a spirit, which she says is Jesus is, you know, dictating these words to her. Well, then we would have to add her book onto the Bible because the canon of Scripture is closed, and yet she's saying that Jesus is now, um, you know, writing another book. And she wrote it down, and it's printed as Jesus Calling. And across America, it's in Christian bookstores and church bookstores, all of them. People are using that book instead of reading their Bibles. Yeah, yeah, amen, yes. And uh, I actually heard an interview with uh, Warren Smith, Recently, I can't remember who he was talking to, but uh, he he's he's kind of an expert on this whole Sarah Young Jesus Calling thing, <laughs> and um, I think she now has a Sarah Young Bible commentary, that, or like a Jesus Calling Bible commentary, something along those lines, mm-hmm. and somewhere in there she makes the claim that it is equal with Scripture. Wow. That wherever Jesus is speaking through her, it is equal with Scripture. Wow. That is dangerous, and I would not want to be in her shoes on that day. And this oh. shows you how doctrinally, um, you know, we have just neglected doctrine in the church. Because a Christian who knows his doctrine, what about bibliology? What what is the Bible? How do we get our Bible? Is the Bible still being written today? They would they would reject that at face value. They wouldn't even have to go any further than that if she knows if this is a book that jesus is giving words now you would you would have to automatically reject that but christians are you know buying them up and by droves and reading them over and over and over again and we are it were the enemy has come in under the guise of christian a lot of it christian psychology mysticism all those practices into the church calling a spirit jesus does not make it who jesus is the son of god Mm. Uh, Okay, so another thing that's creeping into at least the emergent church is this whole idea of walking a labyrinth. Do you have any idea where that comes from? That is uh, apparently, and I, I don't know for sure, but I could, I could research this. But it's ancient. Most of those things that the emergent church does like that originated with Catholic mystics during the Middle Ages. They were yeah, very they- much mystical, um, you know, in, in contact with um, spirits spirit beings by various methods 
during the Middle Ages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The the Desert Fathers, right. uh, uh, St. Teresa of Avila. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Um, okay, that's what my research found too. So just, <laughs> just checking. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about William James. William James is um, uh, one of the found, founders who of um, modern psychology who founded the School of Pragmatism. I guess he he went through a very difficult time in his own life when he was severely depressed and he just stayed in bed all day long. And he came out of that just by, he he, he believed in determinism, which is a, a, a philosophy that everything that goes on it has already been determined and we cannot do anything about it. Man, has we're just pawns of the universe and there isn't... Um, you know, we we don't have any way to change anything, and so when he realized the implications of that, it made him severely depressed, and he just stayed in bed. And then he thought, okay, well, this isn't helping. Oh. So he chose to come out of that and get out of bed because I, he said, I'm going to believe in free will or act as if it's true, even though I really don't believe it. And that led to this whole idea of pragmatism: whatever works must be true. Or valid. I can trick myself into believing something's true because it's, I live my life better even though I really don't believe that it's true. And that's, that's fundamentally changing the way we look at truth. Truth is not something to a pragmatist or to William James, something to be, it's not absolute truth, something that we discover that's out there. It's truth is whatever I want it to be in a situation that makes it work for me. So he, he basically, mm took out the foundation of truth is absolute. Interesting. And so did he ever make the statement that there is no absolute truth? Um, I don't know if he did or not. Okay. <laughs> well, that's just one of those things you hear on college campuses all the time. You know, there is no such thing as truth. There is no absolute truth. And, you know, it, it, it starts getting old because you, you ask the question immediately back, well, are you absolutely sure about that exactly i mean is, is yeah. that statement absolutely true they're making an absolute statement but you know a, a lot of a lot of philosophies would lead to that truth is is anything i want it to be truth is relative your truth is different than my truth that is that is postmodernism versus you know we used to believe there is truth i just i'm just searching for it well you know now they've given up the search and just say i can truth is whatever i want it to be hmm. interesting Okay, so what about John B. Watson? He founded the School of Behaviorism, um, which believes that all human behavior is a result of the physical and chemical um, processes within our bodies. Now, all of these that I've mentioned, it's the one thing they have in common that differs from what our Bibles teach us is that there is something else that's making me behave the way I am. I'm not choosing to do it. It's somebody else's fault or it's something else. So he founded the School of Behaviorism and um, hmm. that he he was the um, Dr. Dobson was a, you know, Skinnerian psychologist because or a, um, he's John B. Watson, that School of Behaviorism then he um, Skinner is the best known I guess B.F. Skinner, um, be- behaviorist, and then that came into the church through Dr. Dobson. 
who was trained in Skinnerian psychology. Wow. So in other words, our mind is just chemicals reacting. And so we can't even really trust our thoughts. It's just our mind reacting to our environment. Um, and so again, going back to there is no absolute moral truths. There is no rights and there is no wrongs. Yeah, and you 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 are not responsible for your own behavior. That's it, mm. it's taking the responsibility for we're not morally culpable. If I did something, if I told a lie, I wasn't choosing to do that. It was just it was just a you know a result of some phys- something physical going on within my own body, and you know this becomes then it it comes into our society when. Criminals are, you know, tried in court. Was it really their fault, or did they choose to do this, or were they a victim of their own chemical happenings within their bodies? Oh, and so that's why we have, you know, so many excuses for um, in our jurisprudence system for criminals. Oh boy, what a mess! Um, Which you know, okay. the world, the world does not have. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the saints, prayer, and you know all, all the things that God has given us to help in our sanctification process. The world doesn't have that. They so they have to. What else do they have? They have to, you know, try to think of ways to help themselves. And if that's if you're uh, if you are not a child of God and have not been born again, then maybe this will help you try it and see how good you do. But it's it's a it's terrible that a believer will give up the riches that we have in Jesus Christ and go to the bankrupt theories of the world and think that they're going to help us become more sanctified, become more like Jesus. Hmm. Okay, so what about Abraham Maslow? Uh, whenever, <laughs> when, when we were there listening to you, uh, my wife, when, when you mentioned Abraham Maslow, she's, she just lets out this sigh because apparently... Um, where she works, which is a, a major hospital in our area that I will not mention, uh, it's a big deal. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. and it's always put in her face. And she, she just, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, tell me about Maslow. So yeah, he he is best known for his little diagram, hierarchy of needs, psychology one hundred and one. You'll find this that it's a it's a pyramid, and at the base is our most foundational needs, according to him. Um, physiological needs like breathing, food, water, sex, sleep. Um, We have to have those needs met. They're foundational to life. And then you go up the pyramid to the next one, our safety needs, which would be um, the security of our bodies, employment, resources, our family, our health, things like that. And then the next layer is our love and belonging needs, friendship, family, relationships, um, you go the next the next one is our esteem our needs to esteem ourselves self esteem confidence achievement respect of others and then at the very top of the pyramid if you have all those needs met you you have reached self actualization and that's when you're a balanced human being happy and when you have all your needs met and that's his hierarchy of needs and it is so prevalent in our culture Christians don't it, it comes in and Christians do not even question what he's actually saying and they and whether it um comports with scriptural truth or not which it doesn't but they buy into it because it's it's everywhere that we we all are need we have our needs and until they're met i can't be 
a certain way. I can't be happy. I can't be who I'm supposed to be. I can't be a good wife because I haven't had my needs met by my husband. Or I can't be a good child. My parents are failing me. You know, they're not meeting my needs. It's all about our needs. Interesting. And so do, do, do you suppose that perhaps that has something to do with uh, the, the one parenting style where they don't discipline their kids and they just say, well, they're expressing themselves and I, I need to just let them do this? Yeah, and that has a lot of Carl Rogers um, philosophy because he said, you know, we, we, he wanted every, we all have to have unconditional positive regard, which is, you know, we can't criticize, we can't, we just have to approve and, and praise and, you know, value other people and constantly affirm them so that they will be who they're supposed to be. So that's, that's a mixture of that, that parenting style. Abraham Maslow's needs and Carl Rogers' self-esteem, positive regard, um, philosophy. <clears throat> hmm. And you hear a lot of that in, in uh, Christianity too, this, this idea of, uh, well, just unconditional positive regard, um, constantly encouraging people, giving them good words and not telling them what they really need to hear. Yeah. We can. You know, you, 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 you've got a problem, yeah. you know, you need, you need to repent. Mm-hmm. Oh no. Yeah. You can't tell people that because that will, that will harm their self-esteem. And so we have, you know, everybody, everybody wins. We never correct anybody. Discipline is, you know, we don't want to discipline people and shame them and make them feel, um, you know, um, embarrassed of themselves or humiliated or anything like that. I'm not saying humiliation, trying to humiliate children is good, but sometimes when we, when we are disciplined, we do feel shame. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But this whole idea of our needs, um, at the master's college where I got my master's, they, they talk about as being this needs-based theology when it comes into the church. And there are so many books written by Christians that have this idea of we all have needs that have to be met. And so especially um, Christian marriage books, Christian marriage um, conferences and things, they will. It, it's all about how can I meet my husband's needs, how can I meet my wife's needs, and it comes right back to Maslow's theories it's not scriptural at all and it's a it's an exercise in futility to try to meet your spouse's needs and not only that they don't need to have their needs met by a spouse before we can be godly because god didn't set it up where i can't be who i'm supposed to be um, in him unless other people in my life are doing what they're supposed to be doing for me i'm not i am not they're not the ones who are going to sanctify me or or help me to be who I'm supposed to be in that way, meeting my needs. We have this um, phrase, felt needs. These are my felt needs. And everybody, go, you know, we have to make sure everybody's felt needs are met so that they can have mental health. We talk about we have to <clears throat> teach people to love themselves before they can love others. In order to be, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to be happy, we have to have our love tank filled. Yeah, I heard that one. Or we have the people in my life have to speak my love language so that I will feel loved. That is not true. That is not biblical. You can't find anything in the Bible. We just go out and love people. God told us to go love others, not wait for people to fill up my love tank. (laughs) And so this whole, I mean, this this whole concept throughout the years of psychology, 
uh, pulling all these concepts together, it's very self-centered. It's all me, me, me. How can I live my best life now? Mm-hmm. Oops, I didn't mean to say that. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. And, <laughs> you know, how, how can this work out good for me? And when I do something wrong, it's not me. It's something else. It's my environment, my circumstances. Somebody else did this. It's the chemicals in my brain. I was born this way, yes. whatever. Yes. But it's, you know, it's definitely not me. No, and that keeps people from the from the one thing that will help them and deliver them from their sins is to confess your sins, repent, and and um, move on. You know, grow in the Lord. If you can't, if you still have some somebody or something else to blame your behaviors on, then you can never get past that. What can I do about my parents who raised me? What can I do about you know my the people at work how they treat me? That's you know how can I I can't do anything about the, my DNA at this point, and so it gives us all an excuse just to stay where we're at and say I can't change my past and I can't change my DNA and so there's nothing I can do. This is who I am. This is my personality. I'm personality type A or B or whatever. I'm this. I'm that. I'm a label. I'm, you know, I have a disorder. I have a syndrome and I'll be in therapy and I'll be taking drugs the rest of my life. It's hopelessness. And there, and there, you cannot find that in scripture anywhere that anybody is hopeless. I mean, we're all, we're, we are all growing in our faith from glory to glory, day by day, being changed into his image. So it is a process. It, it isn't a, a um, you know, there's no magic wand. You just, you're, you know, you're perfect and, and just like Jesus in one day or anything like that. It's a lifetime of growing in him. But you grow in him by reading his word and, and confessing our sins, staying in the fellowship of the saints, listening to the Holy Spirit, and he changes us and transforms our hearts. You take repentance out, and you take giving forgiveness to our fellow man for sinning against us, and you will not become a sanctified person. Mm. And that those concepts, forgiveness um, is a concept in psychology, but it's not, they don't teach it the way that the Bible does. But, you know, confessing our sins one to another, confessing our sins to God, turning from our sins, God transforms our hearts. And then our motives change, and then we want different things than we wanted when we were in the world, and that's that's the um, work of God in our life. Amen. So it's not about uh, it, it's not all about me. It's not about you know giving people positive reinforcement and building them up and meeting their felt needs and uh, yes. checking in to see where. That they are uh, missing out on their pyramid of of needs. No. Uh, it, it comes down to when we've got an issue, we need to take it to the Lord. Uh, there's a decent chance that it might be rooted in some kind of either sin or unforgiveness, mm-hmm. and, and we need to treat this biblically. Yes. And the the whole idea itself is completely opposite of what the Bible teaches. In psychology, it is a religion of self. It's all about me and my needs and what I want, and and yet the Bible says self, our sin nature, is our problem. That's what Jesus said: deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's and so in biblical counseling, we get down to not just the behavior because most of psychology is behavior modification, just different techniques and different theories 
uh, different um, ways to try to get you to change if you want to, um, you know, change something about yourself or what you're doing. If it's harming you, you know, and you don't like to do this anymore. So it's behavior modification. But um, that's a reductionism of what the Bible, the Bible part of the matter. Why am I doing this? What is my motive? And God can change our motive. When we change our, when we repent, our motives can change. When you change a motive, you change a bunch of behaviors. Amen. And so what does it look like, okay, when people come to uh, the Colorado Biblical Counseling Center um, and they have a problem, uh, how is that typically dealt with then? How you guys bring them in and, and what happens next? Uh, well, of course, it would, it would differ depending on the situation that they're in. Um, biblical counseling is another name for discipleship. So, And the, the broad... Um, process of it is to put off the old man and put on be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man from Colossians 3. So we would I start them on um, a Bible reading program and and praying and going to church and I talk about spiritual warfare and how that's tied to our emotions. We do what repentance and forgiveness and all these things just to get them going strong. Um, get their walk going in the right direction because a lot of Christians don't have don't read their Bibles and pray, etc. We that's the putting on the new man if if you are saved. Then whatever their particular problem is, it could be something that is not their fault at all. A difficult situation with a family member, a neighbor, you know, somebody at church, whatever. That but how are you responding to that? Is it is it sinful or is it the way that um, the Lord wants you to respond to that? And based on their own personal behavior, we get down to what is their um, lust of the flesh. It's what is what is the motive behind what they're doing? How are you responding to that mean and hateful person? Then we would get down and look at what is your motive, and we would um, have them recognize that. There's how their sin nature, according to James 1, 14 and 15, is being drawn away because of the lust of their flesh. They take the bait, and then they go ahead and commit the act of sin, whatever the behavior is. But it starts in the heart. So we get down to the heart issue, and then they recognize it if they're willing to turn from that and repent. We do a teaching on biblical repentance and walk in the Spirit, then they won't fulfill the lust, and the behavior will change. So that's it in a nutshell. Amen. And, and and so and you've had a lot of success in helping people through their their problems. Absolutely. I I tell people guaranteed 100% if you if if we figure out what the actual situation is and what you are how you know if you're willing to admit how you're responding to it and you're willing to follow what the Bible teaches about these things. 100% guarantee that you will be a, you will change. And if not, then then our Bible we put the Bible to the test in biblical counseling. Is this true? Here's the principle that God has taught us. Go home and put it put it to the test like this and see what happens. And every single counselor that I've ever had who has who has been who wants to change enough that they're willing to do what God wants us to do. They will change. Their marriages will be different. The parent-child relationships will be different. They will have peace in their soul if they're anxious. 
I mean, God has given us the answers. His word is sufficient. And it doesn't, it is not years of therapy. It, it isn't therapy at all, obviously, but it, you know, therapy can last the rest of your life. This is not, this is more teaching, discipleship. We teach them how to walk in the Lord, how to, and then how their sin nature is acting, what to do about that, how to have victory over in, when, you know, in spiritual warfare. And, um, they go on their way. Amen. Amen. So, exciting. so it, yeah, and that's what biblical counseling looks like. The alternative would be to go to uh, whether secular or Christian. It doesn't really matter at that point because they're if if they're licensed by the state, they're not going to be able to do t- too much biblically for you. And what you're going to get then is uh, an eclectic mismatch of different theories. In fact, that's something you talked about a little bit during your presentation that no two psychologists are going to give you the same treatment. Right. It's it, it's really it's very eclectic and they're just grabbing a little bit from over here and a little bit from over there and they're playing with your mind. Yes, absolutely. You, <laughs> they're experimenting on you basically. You cannot just open up the yellow pages and find a psychologist and go to him and say here's my problem and you know how would you fix it? Uh, I mean you could do that, but you each, if you interviewed a hundred different psychologists and you said, well, what do you think about this? And they might, they might, their way to deal with it would be different. Now it would be within the dictates of what the state is telling them the protocol is for a, you know, if you've been diagnosed bipolar, if you've been diagnosed depressed or anxiety disorder, all those, they have a particular, um, you know, protocol that they have to follow. But the end, how the individual psychologists actually does that will vary. Hmm. You know, one of the techniques you mentioned that just blew me away, this whole idea of rolling somebody up in a rug or a blanket. (laughs) Do you want to describe that really quick? That just blew me away. I thought, you know, professionals actually do that? Oh, that's to become born again. They get down. Uh, Yeah, it's a, it's a technique to, um, to go back. It's the healing of memories they call it, and you go back, um, you get on the floor, and some of them actual, actually get into a fetal position, and they walk you through the birthing process, and they, they say, here comes a contraction, but your mother still loves you, and, and then, you know, they, they go through the whole process, and now you're coming out, and that's, you know, I have had Christians tell me, now I know what Jesus meant when he said we must be born again. Because they go back through that process, and that has its theory in the collective subconscious. We all have these memories that are with us, and that's what's causing us to have so many problems. So we have to go back and rediscover those and and heal those memories and walk through with Jesus right there with you so that you can change those memories into something that's that's helpful for you instead of causing you all the problems that it does. Oh, my goodness. But, but, you know, people are um, suffering, and they are grasping at anything. They just want relief from their problems. And that's, you know, I'm so saddened for the church that we have answers. And a lot of, um, most of the MDiv degrees in in seminaries across the United States, if, if your pastor takes counseling classes, he will take them from, a psychological perspective. There's very few that offer that teach a pastor how to just open up the scriptures and help pro- people who have 
very maybe long-standing and very sad and you know complicated um, problems, and they will they they're over the pastor may be overwhelmed and says I think I need to refer you to a professional when he has the word of life in his hands and he doesn't know how to use it to help people, and that's what the mm-hmm. biblical counseling movement is trying to help people learn to do. If you know your Bible, you can help people. So what would you say to any listener out there who is either A, going to see a psychologist, or or B, maybe sending one of their children to one of these? Well, I would, I like for people to become informed so that they can make an intelligent decision on what kind of counseling do I personally believe in and what kind of counseling am I going to invest in? You invest a lot of time and money in into a secular um, psychologist or psychiatrist. And before you do that, and especially before you put your children under their tutelage, uh, to become informed on the differences between um, psychology and psychological counseling, even Christian psychology and um, biblical counseling. There's a and then when you see it, like if you come to a seminar or like what I do, um, then you see it for what it is, and then you can say, "I this is what I believe, and here's I'm going here for this reason." And then you you have informed yourself and you've made a decision. Um, but most people aren't aware of um, of what's at stake and and what they're putting themselves or their family members under. Valerie, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It it has been very informative and, and such a blessing. Thank you for having me. All right, friends, that was Valerie Ellis. Um, if there's anybody out there that would like to get a hold of her, you can reach Valerie at uh, cbcc.valerie.ellis at gmail.com. Uh, again, that's cbcc. Dot Valerie, which is V-A-L-E-R-I-E dot Ellis, E-L-L-I-S at gmail.com. And with that, I love you guys and we'll see you next week.